Hello, welcome back to Projecting. I know it's been a little while since an update, but uh, we're back again, and I got some episodes recorded now, and I'm sitting here with a really awesome documentarian and local filmmaker, Victoria Green. She's uh, been working on a project called Forgotten Bayou. Uh, we started our documentaries around the same time, actually. I started Reddit Doc in late October of uh, 2013, and she had started about half a year earlier in March on this, and I'll let you take it away, but it's mainly about covering the Bayou Corn sinkhole um, that emerged, and I can't remember the exact date it happened, but I know you were covering it pretty shortly after. The sinkhole occurred on August 3rd, 2012, almost four years ago, and I actually got involved on March 9th, 2013. And my purpose for going to this meeting, there was a community meeting, they would have them every single month, and I went there because Aaron Brockovich was attending, and I was interested in the sinkhole. Even though you see it on the news, the situation, um, even now I'll talk to people, they have no idea as to the magnitude of this industrial accident or disaster. So that's why I went. Aaron talked a little bit, the attorneys talked, and then once the homeowners started telling their stories, how they were frustrated, they were in limbo, I'd say within 15 minutes I knew that I had to tell their story. And I don't know why, but that's when I started, and immediately thereafter I was in the neighborhood. Have you um, done any filmmaking prior to that? Had you done anything like this? My experience with documentaries was nil. I would interview people that had done documentaries when I was on public television on air, so I would hear about their films, their stories, and I'd watch documentaries. I produced about three-quarters of a dozen shorts beforehand, but a six- to ten-minute short is very different than a documentary. Mm -hmm. So I knew about interviewing um, and through the people that I interviewed, I knew what their passion was, I knew about various subjects, and I had a relationship with public television, but that's it. Hmm. Never did a doc before, and I just knew I had to do it. So how did you even, like, get underway? Did you start reaching out to other filmmakers? Did you kind of, like, what was, what was kind of the first steps, and how did it develop over time? The first step was getting somebody else that I knew that would begin shooting and also do the sound. And he kind of started with me, but he moved to the West Coast. So then I was left by myself. Um, so I proceeded to hire a team. And they were much more experienced than myself. I really believe in collaboration. And by getting an experienced team for myself, who was not experienced, it would net better results, a better film. And so in 2014 is when I started. Late 2013, early 2014, I picked up an editor. I picked up another producer. And I had some animation covered, and that was it. And then my editor turned out to be my shooter, too, my main shooter, Paul Ledoux. And he went with me on all the shoots. Much of what I shot in 2013 had to be reshot. So I had to make a decision. Do I go forward and spend more money, or do I stop? And obviously, I decided to proceed forward. Hmm. So I did go into the neighborhood. I met the communities. I met the officials. I filmed many of the meetings, the community meetings, myself. And just by introducing myself to people, they would introduce me to others. And then before you knew it, um, everybody knew who I was. So what's kind of been that participation by people in the town like? I mean, uh, besides being interviewed, um, what's been their support for it? Or have they had any, taken any issue with the project? Has there, you know, what's, kind of, what's that looked like? I found out recently that many homeowners were skeptical of me. And they didn't know me. I, at that time, I was when I started, I was living in Baton Rouge, and then I came to New Orleans. But they were very skeptical because they didn't know me. They didn't know what my platform was. They didn't know what their stories were going to be portrayed adequately. 
but in time they began to trust me. I try to encompass all sides of the story. There are homeowners that elected to stay during the mandatory evacuation, which I'll explain in a little bit, and then there were those that had to leave that very day. And then there are some now, almost four years after it happened, that decided despite any unknown risk, they are staying. And there are about 12 families of the original 150 that still live there, and they back up to the bayou. And their concern is whether or not I'm portraying their point of view adequately, and I think I am. So I guess I kind of bulldozed past this a little bit earlier, but tell us a little bit about the bayou sinkhole. So, So what exactly happened? That's an interesting question because there are different sides of the story. Like probably different. Yes. Of those yes. Potential responsible parties have their own. Correct. <laughs> Everybody says that a breach on the side wall of a cavern, I'm going to go backwards in a minute, caused the sinkhole. But what caused the breach? And that's where there's a lot of mm, discussion. Um, some believe it's from the oil drilling that had gone on for years right next to the, the salt dome called the Big Hum, and that because of the drilling, it weakened the wall essentially. And at that point, there was a breach or a crack in the salt, kind of like, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but you know, when you pull out a like an arch, if you have a think of an arch doorway, and if you pull out the key, keystone, uh, kind of like that essentially, but it was on the side. Um, l- Let me go backwards a little bit. Two months before the sinkhole, a year before the sinkhole occurred, these cavern, this particular cavern that was in this Napoleonville salt dome, which is one by three miles. And everybody knows what salt is used for as far as with medication, aspirin, but it's also used in just about everything we make, every plastic, your cell phone case, any component that is mixed with petroleum, it's, it always has brine, which is salt. And this particular salt dome, which like so many in Louisiana, it's thousands of feet below the surface. So they inject water at a high pressure into the solid salt, and that creates then a cavern or a cavity. And it brings up the various components of brine. So is this is this different from fracking, or are you talking about fracking? Mostly? No, this isn't fracking, fracking at all. There's the water. I know they do similar. I, mean, I don't know enough about the actual well, engineering behind it, but well, I'm not an engineer, and I'm not totally versed with fracking. But essentially, fracking is diagonally uh, um, mining, and it goes into the rock diagonally to get all the gas and all the oil. But additionally, they use chemicals in that water, mm-hmm. and then they spit it out, and then it comes back up along with the oil, and it's separated. And sometimes it's injected into various caverns or injection wells, or it's stored in tanks. Brine mining, nothing is, nothing goes away. The, the brine or the salty water stays in the cavern, and what comes up is piped to the chemical plants. And it's either sodium chloride, it's sodium chloride and chlorine, and it's separated, and it's all used. And the only thing in this cavern is salty brine. Now, this particular salt dome, people don't understand really. uh, I never knew what a salt dome was. But all of the salt domes in Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi and other a few other places, including the Gulf of Mexico, that's where all of the rich oil deposits are on the outside of all the salt domes. And the salt domes were created in Jurassic times, millions of years ago. And that's where all the oil and gas is. Even the Gulf of Mexico, that's on salt domes, or right adjacent to them. 
and there are 53 caverns in this one by three mile salt dome. Am I losing you yet? No. Okay. And most of those are used for brine, mm -hmm. but once they've used, or they claim that um, they've used, they've mined it enough, then they start storing chemicals, oil, butane in these caverns. Our strategic oil reserves are in western Louisiana in salt caverns. Mm -hmm. If done right, it's very safe. And nothing like this had ever happened in the world ever before. And the DNR, I was going through my transcripts the other day, and in the transcripts it stated, well, we really don't know what caused the breach because it's buried down in rubble. 55,000 feet or right, so, so it's from below. Yeah. And, and yeah. But Texas Brine believes that the oil companies from the oil drilling caused that. And they have a suit with the oil company that drilled on that site right next to, not on that site, but they had a well and various wells right next to them. And there's a class action they're representing with the people from the area, right? That's settled. Okay. That's settled. This is, there's millions of dollars in litigation. Um, there's a particular pending suit with Texas Brine and Occidental for $100 million. Mm -hmm. That's public record. Um, there was a class action suit filed by the homeowners for $48 million. That was settled. So most of the people are gone. Of the 12 families that are still there. Um, and how many were, yeah, how many were 150 there? families, 350 people. Yeah, 12 families, and most of those are, only, there's no children. So it's essentially 24 people, and that's it. A couple came over from the older side, and they're in the newer side. And there are seven homeowners. Their monies are coming from the class action, but they've not settled. And their properties are worth nothing. And they won't settle until all of the litigation is likely done. No date. Worthless. Hmm. So if you left, you didn't want to leave. You were compensated, so at least you could buy another home. But for the people that live there now, worth nothing. Hmm. But they wanted to stay there regardless. I mean, imagine, imagine one day, the day, August 3rd, 2012, the parish president goes to the site, the Office of Emergency Preparedness goes to the site, the sheriff... All of these officials, and because of the unknown, they called a mandatory evacuation of the community. So they're standing out in the boat landing, around the boat landing, <laughs> around a pickup truck, which is where the parish president was, told to get out, that it's dangerous. Like hurricanes in New Orleans, they can't force you to leave, but it was under mandatory evacuation. Uh -huh. So imagine, what do you do? Do you stay? Do you go? What do you do? Right. And some people don't want to take any risks, so most left. And today, four years later, it's half of the community, which is where the majority of homeowners lived, is like a ghost town. It's abandoned. It looks like there was a nuclear bomb, and people just had to leave. Doors are open. Windows are open. Grass is overgrown. There's still cats around the neighborhood. And then on the other side of the highway, you have 26 structures, the homes, and there's 12 families now that live in the homes, so that means 24 aren't being used, and they're going to be bulldozed. But it's more manicured. It's like a contemporary, typical suburban neighborhood. Hmm. It's very weird. So what is your story kind of focus on? So like what's like, you know, you're obviously you want people to go see it, so you don't have to give too much, but kind of your call to action and your, your overall, is this mostly about the families? Is it mostly about the litigation? Is it the story as a whole? What's kind of... Well, the film... 
predominantly is about the community and about people and what happens to a community when they're, when they're in this situation and how they feel. I mean, we're going to talk about the sinkhole. We're going to talk about what happened. But ultimately, you want to be able to con- include the community as an equation instead of just collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And how they feel they were treated. There's people that stayed, people that left, people that felt they were treated well, people that left felt they were not treated well. So there's many different, it's very complex. But I want people to take away when they do see this film that A, this is a community in the middle of the Louisiana swamps. And like so many other communities in Louisiana, Texas, California, Canada, they live near petrochemical plants, they live near pipelines, and they live near a train track. And how often does that happen where trains get into accidents? So what happens to the community? It could happen to anybody. So the, the sinkhole is unique, but not what happens to communities. And it's a matter of being proactive. What communities can do when it happens to them? What companies can do? What officials should do? And we hear it from the people. So this film could essentially be a benchmark for corporations to listen to what a community says, how you can do a better job when you're in this situation, and also for the communities. General Honoré became very active. The community contacted him. And once he became active, there was a little bit more noise about it. Uh-huh. And then it goes away. Right. And essentially, there was a, a very small article written by the Homa Courier a couple of weeks ago, but essentially not a big newspaper or news station other than interviewing me has had anything on their pages or on the news since September, October 2015. Hmm. But I regularly keep people posted on my Facebook page, which yeah. is the Forgotten Bayou Facebook page. And we try to keep, abre- keep people abreast of what's going on. Is it still under a mandatory evacuation? Has it gotten bigger? Right now it's uh, the size of two and a half superdomes. Hmm. It's 35 acres. And it's stabilized, and it probably won't get bigger. Nobody died. Nobody's homes fell in the sinkhole. So why should we care, right? Mm. But we do have to care. Because all these communities are the backbone of America. Right. Hmm. See, it's, it's, it's interesting seeing stuff like this because, you know, there's a lot, you know, between this and, you, you know, the issue in Flint, Michigan with the water. And a lot of it's that, you know, there's... Arguments you can make arguments about corporate greed. You make arguments about people living in the wrong areas and all these things. But it does kind of boil down to ultimately, regardless of whose fault it is, regardless of what's going on, people are there, and some left and some didn't. And it's easy to say things like, "Well, they should just leave." And it's like, "Well, say that to the twenty-five percent of New Orleans who didn't leave in the storm, right?" Sometimes people don't even have the means. Um, I mean, I imagine not to draw broad strokes about the area, but most of Louisiana. Our, our income levels are not very high. Um, Louisiana is definitely known as it's kind of a poster child for a lot of poverty in the South. And um, not that these people are in abject poverty, but I imagine they, they, they're probably not able to just pick up, move, and start a life willy-nilly. I mean, I imagine a lot of it, it, t- it takes a lot of planning time and effort, and for some people it might not even be a real option. And most of them were retirees. Right. I was they say, had a lot of young families. It, yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the couple that we interviewed, they were in their 80s. 83 when it happened. Imagine just picking up at 83. Like, yeah, just do it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> just do it. Uh, but, yeah, and, and I think we're so 
we're almost immune to all these disasters, Katrina, Rita, Gustav, and then the BP oil spill. So many issues, things that have happened in Louisiana, we, we become immune to until it happens to you. Sure. So, yeah, they had to just pick up and leave. And who am I to say what they should and should not do? But Katrina, I lived in Baton Rouge at the time, and I remember the stories. Whoever thought that this would happen? Whoever thought that the levees would break? It is unthinkable. And we look at what, how it was handled years later <laughs> and can evaluate it. And I'm hoping it's only been four years for the sinkhole that the next time, not if, that individuals can look at this film instead of waiting 10 years and learn something. Right. That's the thing. It's like, you know, you, you hope that people can get, you know, no one died this time. No one lost property this, this time. time. It's, it's definitely, as you said, they kind of dodged a bullet. And even afterwards, they're still all wounded, right? They've still, they've, their community's destroyed. I mean, you, you've, you've lost a, you've lost a cultural aspect. You've lost a piece of Louisiana in some ways um, and, and kind of disseminated them into the rest of the state. And not that that's, you know, they, they bring their value and experience and their stories, but there's an identity to every area. So it's, a, it's, it's an unfortunate loss in a lot of ways. They blended into other communities, and uh, like you said, they've lost their identity. But despite that, and what I think I admired so much that day that I met them, was there was a certain amount of strength, spirit, and resiliency that still came through. Nobody said to the government, how can you help me, help me? Nobody said that. They just wanted what they were entitled to. And they were compensated, most of the families, when they had to leave temporarily, they were compensated by Texas Brine, the company that mm-hmm. um, was the operator for that salt cavern. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was enough where they weren't in the streets. But it wasn't their home. They didn't want to leave. Right. Just like people from Katrina didn't want to leave. Yeah. And they didn't. And look how many died in Katrina. Right. But every disaster is unique. Um, there are people that have not come back to New Orleans. Right. Since the, the the hurricane, and unfortunately, Bayou Corn, twelve families does not make a community. Most of them are Cajuns. Most of them came from a, the Nova Scotia area. They were Acadians, and they settled in southern Louisiana, and they lived off the land. Right. Very simple people, and that culture in that area has gone away. Right. Some of them live in Baton Rouge. They've gotten as far of there, far away from there as possible. Well, if you don't mind me, I'm shifting gears a little. Is there anything else you want to add to that? I'm saying because... Um, Do you have any of, other questions? Well, I was going to say shifting gears a little bit. I was looking a little bit into the production side of this. One mm-hmm. thing that's interesting is, you know, documentaries had a lot of people I've, I've talked to about. They want to start one or asking me about it. And Documentaries are very hard to sustain. Um, it's very easy to get very excited in the beginning. And there's a lot of, lot more low points than high points, to be honest. I mean, in my experience, at least. Cause I agree. Just, there's just time where you're fighting for money, a lot of times putting your own in, um, a lot of times just it's, it's a, it's a real struggle to get them done. It's hard. You know, there's not a whole lot of uh, financial promise you can give people. Um, so how have you sustained a film for three years? I mean, I just curious, it's like, um, what's kind of been not like the arc of the production, but, um, what's kind of, what have you found has worked and what hasn't worked? In 2013, when I started this, the immediately it was going to be to do a short, and initially, even before that, do a teaser and raise money. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the video where the trees are sloughing in, um, in the vortex of the sinkhole went viral. When that came out in August 
of 2013. And I had been doing a little bit of shooting, interviewing, meeting people. I go with my gut. And I knew that I had to start shooting now. So I bought some additional equipment, some better sound equipment, some better lenses, another camera. And we started, started interviewing. If I hadn't gone with my gut, I never would have interviewed Texas Prime. There were some people that stopped talking at that point. So when I made that decision to do that, and then subsequently in 2014, hiring an experienced team, I cashed in a lot of my retirement. So it's a good thing I had it. it it's a tremendous risk. Uh, as Absolutely. you know, as you know, documentaries are passion projects. You don't go in it to make money. If you do, you might as well get out. I mean, Errol Morris's money comes from commercials, yeah, right? I mean. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You do it because it's, it's, you're passionate about it and because you're telling a story. And ultimately, that's what it was. There have been times, I'd say there are probably more high, high times than there are low times. But there have been some frustrating points, and they all had to do with money. Yeah. I mean, more as far as like you'll go weeks where it's just nothing happens. It's just spinning wheels, yeah. and you're waiting on this, and you're waiting on that, and so many stalling points. Not that it's like, at the end of the day, a documentary is nothing but a miserable experience. Mm-hmm. I don't mean imply. Oh, I, I know yeah. that because you're doing your because it, yeah. it's very rewarding. But as far as the low points, yeah. I mean, I've tried to enjoy all of them. Like this is my first. Or you're, there's only going to be one time that it's your first. But you're right about lulls. And the biggest challenge for me, well, no, I can't say the biggest because every time something new comes up, the biggest challenge. Now I'm doing music. <laughs> this is, is current, the biggest challenge. What are your current big challenges. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I when I started creating the assembly, which for any viewers out there or listeners that don't know what an assembly is, when you when you go through all the hours and hours and hours of footage that have been transcribed, so you're watching the video, you're reading the transcripts at the same time, and you're pulling out the sound bites that are important to the story. And when I started it, I had an arc, I had an outline, I had an idea of where I wanted to go, but ultimately it's not until you really get into it. And I'd say the first chapter that I worked on took me three weeks and I had 31 pages that had to be condensed then into the edit um, program. I think maybe three minutes in the entire film came from those 32 pages of sound bites <laughs> because it's not until you get into it that you realize I don't need that I don't need that this isn't a science project well, that's the great it's a story of documentaries is that you go in to tell a story you go in and do right. this thing but by the time you've started it you've done little to no research I mean realistically you can do as much background work if you want you can look into the subject but until you've actually started coming into person with obviously coming into contact with the subject you're really not, you're much more informed by the end of shooting it. And that, that you, there's this, you have to kind of stick to a plot because it's very easy to go a thousand routes and a thousand different strands. I mean, I definitely found that out with Reddit. Yep. But you also have to be able to change tack. Like you can't. To be organic. Yes, you can't go be with the flow. To. It's very much like you lay down some rails and then you allow yourself to kind of oh, shift them over a little mm-hmm. bit and do this and occasionally let go of something you really loved. Yeah. I've written the ending several times, but I never, I, what I went, when I started, I had this idea of what I wanted the beginning to be. Well, that's, we're not even going there. It's, it's, it's like, no, this doesn't work. And it's not until you see all of the footage and you put your story together. And for anybody that's doing documentary, it's not like a narrative. You, you, you have three acts, you have your beginning, middle and end, 
but it changes, which is exactly what you said. And if you go in there so structured that this is how you're going to start it, this is how your narration is going to go, or you're not going to use a narrator, you're screwed before you even start. Well, like you said, the people were, you found that it was less of a, like, I need help. And if you'd gone in with the mentality of, like, oh, I'm going to show the plight of a people, which you get very close territory to exploitation. But you start going with that mentality, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do it, and then none of them are acting that way and you start forcing your narrative to make it look that way anyway, mm-hmm. now you've got a whole nother round of problems. But obviously you're able to look at it and you went, oh, wow, these people are reacting in a very different way. And that shows your ability to shift gears and to address the realities of your film. I even, I, inter- I had an interview yesterday and I even learned something that I didn't know anything about. It was regarding science. Like, how did I not know this? How did nobody bring this up in three and a half years? Not one official, not one scientist, nobody. So you learn constantly, and it's like, how are we going to put this in the film? Um, the other thing is, in my case, be real. Tell the story. Don't tell people how to feel. Don't tell them what to think. And I think we've accomplished that goal. Just because I may think something different, if it comes from the individual, whether it's a scientist or whether it's Texas Brian or whether it's a homeowner, it's their opinion. It's their story. That's always tricky with an edit is like, how do you maintain people's words and where do you make cuts? Because, you know, documents are made in the editing room and we strive for this. Um, Peter Novak has this very great but boring um, book called That Noble Dream. Um, it's this historical text I had to read and years ago. And as dry as it was, it's all about the objectivity question, the idea that can we be objective? And I think the answer is categorically no. But you still strive for it, right? You know mm-hmm. you can't be perfect, but you try to be perfect. You do the best you can. Yeah, and so the idea of not doing violence to someone's narrative. Like, you you can't get every single story, but you can damn well try to get as many as you can and try to make it so that when that person sees their depiction, they felt like, their opinion was properly portrayed. It's interesting. There's so much politics to representation. Oh, God. And there, there's going to be people that aren't going to like this film. Oh, I'm sure. Can't make um, everyone happier. You're not doing a good job. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that's why every person I started talking to in the beginning is still talking to me now. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what side of the, whether of the equation they are, whether they're um, the corporation, the scientists, the state officials. I maintain relationships. And they believe that I'm going to tell their side of the story, which is what I've done. But when I started, I did a couple of trailers. Then I did another trailer. Then I did a nine-minute piece when I had a fundraiser so the homeowners could see that. Then I did a 14-minute short. And you had your eight-millimeter black and white one. Oh, I forgot about that. The (laughs) eight-millimeter Life on the Sinkhole. I remember that. (laughs) So by the time it actually came for the documentary. She actually did shoot an eight-millimeter, by the way. That was a time code, Nolan? Yeah. 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 actually went out and shot a piece on it. Black and white, eight millimeter film. And it rained. It was in the credit. Monster in the Bayou is the short. And we we won. We tied for the documentary um, classification with another person who's in northern in the northern part of the U.S. Sorry, I didn't mean to I just was no, like, we're mentioning. No, I forgot like, about that because Time Co. Nola was amazing. Yeah, when we say 8 millimeter, I mean, she literally did. So it's pretty cool. That's well, one, you, you unusual mentioned, medium. <laughs> it was really cool, though. It was fun, and it was storming that day. Now, I have since gone out there at least three times because we wanted to capture footage in the rain. 100% chance of rain. 
It's not rained when we've gone there at all, when we were shooting specifically for the rain. But it rained for the 8-millimeter, and I wish we would have been shooting on, the, on our cameras uh, besides that. The guys, um, they're both producers. One is my editor and shooter, and then the other producer, John Darling Haynes, he's the, um, a shooter as well. They wanted to shoot on 16-millimeter, and they were just determined. They were selling it to me. And I said, you know, I would love to do 16-millimeter. Let's take it out of your cuts, and then we can do it. Well, we don't have any 16 millimeter in there. <laughs> it was a great idea, but it's like part of being a producer, of, of being the director, you have to stay on budget, which I'm not. I'm at least 20% over. you got to decide when you're going to go right. to the budget, what's worth it. And I, right. I agree, I love the 16 millimeter ah, look. It's fabulous. But... That's why I own a Black Magic Pocket. I have a digital 16 millimeter. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I haven't used that as, one. Not as good, obviously, as the real thing, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, film's hard to work with. And you got to get a process. And even if they, a lot of companies will donate some film stock, but ultimately you still got to account for it. Well, we had film stock, but I had to get a camera. And because sure um, John's, too. yeah, John's uh, camera wasn't perfect. Then you need the, sec- the, the lenses and, mm-hmm. or, the attachments, whatever, mm-hmm. and then the processing. But ultimately, when I figured it all out, it was still going to be more. And so what I've done, the bulk of my budget is in post, sound, color, and editing, your final edit. And for anybody oh, out there, yeah. anybody out there, you're a sound guy, don't cheat your sound. And I thought I could get <laughs> away without doing a sound design. But, I mean, you spend all this money my retirement money, my nest egg, and it's in this film, and I'm going to not do a sound design, so well, I, I'm doing a sound design, so don't, don't cheat sound. People, I hear it all the time, oh, we'll fix it in post. They're not going to fix it in post. I have some sound bites from 2013. You'll dump money to get a decent, you'll get, dump money to maybe patch holes. Yeah. Like. <laughs> well, there's two interviews that I couldn't, I couldn't reshoot there with Texas Brine uh, from 2013. The sound is horrible but fortunately the sound guys i talked to a couple of them it will be fixed it'll be massaged but it won't be perfect yeah and there's one um sound bite that an individual that comes out of his mouth and i can't use i have to get narration because it's not perfect mm. and i can't it's in a very crucial part of my film i can't it has to be perfect perfect audio perfect video <laughs> so yeah i've um I haven't done it half-assed. I've done the best I could. But on a production standpoint, I also have a great composer. And as I said a few minutes ago, everything is the most difficult. But music, oh my gosh, it's very difficult. Because how do you tell someone when they're creating it, ah, I'm not feeling it, but I don't know how I'm not feeling it. I don't know why. We don't, exactly, we don't speak the same language. So I'll call um, Paul, my editor, who is a musician as well, and say, why don't I like this? What am I? I can't put into words what I'm hearing. <laughs> but the composer, we have an awesome composer. He's done about 30 scores, Mike Esnold, about 30 scores for PBS. He's won an Emmy, and he's worked with a lot of local musicians. He plays, he writes music, he teaches. He's amazing, and he has patience <laughs> because anybody working with me needs a little patience. <laughs> well, um, I guess that honestly covers a lot um i mean is there anything we didn't get to that you really wanted to cover i mean i feel like this has been incredibly informative i mean this is uh not too boring with the science not at all i think there's i think it's best to hit a little bit of everything i think that you know well there's only two demonstrates you actually did research and know what you're talking about i mean that's important because it's one thing to be like 
this bad thing happened and I'm got to I'm mad. Yeah, you know, and then you're like I want things to change, but yeah, and you're like, well, it's, here's how this operated and here's some theories as to how it happened. We're not you know, you're very you're very detailed and I think that's important. Demonstrating uh -huh. knowledge is really critical and really I mean, I, you can't do a documentary about something you're ignorant about. No. People but, try, but you can't. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> um, the interesting thing is I have no science background. One of our homeowners, uh, Johnny Mobble, I, I guess about two years ago, it's like, Johnny, I just don't understand exactly what caused the sinkhole. So he explained it in layman's terms. And here I am, a year and a half into it, oh, now I get it. Kind of starts all clicking. Yeah, and I don't try to say what I don't say. I tell everybody when I'm on, I've been on the news. Well, a couple of things I want to focus on. One, don't think you can't do it because you're a filmmaker, that you can't promote your film, that you can't be on the news, that you can't do events, that you can't do fundraising. There's no such word as can't. I mean, you and I run into each other at how many networking events. Exactly. So like all we're ever doing is pimping our exactly. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> but I've been very fortunate. I've been on the news, I think, about 12 or 13 times. It's always around an event. Um, it's awesome that you have such support. That's fantastic. Well, but you have to look for it. Oh, yeah. And Novak has been an amazing uh, source and resource. They're wonderful. They're really they support us. They're my physical sponsor. They're your physical sponsor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's a great network of people, and, and I've learned from them. I've taken just about every class you can take. Oh, I think that's why we know each other from Novak. Even. Exactly. That's where, we, that's where we met. I, I think it was, uh, was it Web Weekend? One of those events. Either Web Weekend, Sync Up, yeah, uh, Third Thursday. Something, yeah. It's, that's what's so cool about New Orleans. I mean, we yeah. really did, like when we were both starting our projects. I mean, yeah, it was we in 2013 when we like, met. Yeah, so I mean, and that's because of Novak. I mean, they're wonderful. Yeah, we have a great film community here. The other couple things I just want to touch on, film right credits. Ahead. Pardon me? Yeah, go right ahead. Thank you. Film credits. Um, the indigenous tax credits for Louisiana mm -hmm. filmmakers. It is an opportunity. And $50,000 is the minimum. Uh, of course, it depends if it's a narrative or if it's a documentary as far as uh, whether or not you can get up to 55% or 40%. But it's not quite as clean cut. And to be clear, this is the new, with the new legislation that uh, put a cap. They added something I thought we've needed for a long time because we do put tax money into this credit. I think it's unfair that we didn't have greater access. But one wonderful silver lining in the thing was the barrier for us went from three hundred grand to fifty grand. It was a two-year resident, like ninety percent year. I forgot all the parameters, but yeah, you have to be a resident for a certain amount of time and a certain amount of your crew has to be. It's mm -hmm. like it's stricter than the normal tax credits. Mm -hmm. But if you're a resident, you can get a higher percentage off. Correct. And the barrier is fifty grand instead of three hundred grand, which, which is, is much more realistic for documentary. Yeah, and even expensive short films. I had applied for the three hundred plus because in those days it's based on what you spend. Right. Not on your budget, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have over three hundred thousand dollars in budget." Wrong. <laughs> so I, I wasted my time. I wasted my money. I wanted to withdraw, but I didn't. And then when these new tax credit laws passed last year, and I saw that it went down to fifty thousand, it's like, oh, I could take advantage of it. They're much more strict. You can't go back a year, whereas three hundred and up, you can go back a year. Yeah. So essentially, mine uh, went into effect July one of twenty. 15 um, going forward. Yeah. So it'll be um, basically covering post. I've had to do some shooting. I've had to go back in the neighborhood. But there are a couple of things that are here for Louisiana filmmakers under 300,000. Number one, there's an extra 15% for a narrative, not a documentary, for a script, if it's a Louisiana script, if you have intellectual property yeah. rights. 
Number two, your composer. If it's a Louisiana composer, there's another 15%, not of the bass, but of your expenses for the composer and for the musicians. I don't know that specific aspect. 15%, yes. 40% versus 30 for all contractors, actors that live in Louisiana that are for at least two years. No, actually, that 40% is for anybody doing the work here in Louisiana. They don't have to be a resident as long as you meet that criteria. A certain percentage of your crew has to to be be from from Louisiana. Louisiana. And then 30% of all of your other expenditures, less tax. So if meals, production office, all of that, less your tax. The other thing that's really new is that there's 15% of promotional fees, Mm. but it's not specified what it means. So I still don't know. So it's like t-shirts, is that covered? Festivals, is that covered? A cut for a trailer, is that covered? We don't know. It hasn't. It's in progress. Gas to go to the news. <laughs> so a lot of it you you don't you don't know, but it's going to be there. And the challenging part for any indigenous Louisiana filmmaker, you have to come up with an application fee of a minimum of five hundred dollars. And depending on what your budget is, mine was five thousand dollars. For pre, before they would pre-certify me, and that is for the audit, even though I may not be audited until December. And they're only allowing two years, where with 300000 up, it's five years. You can't do a doc in two years, not if you want to do it right, and not if it's a feature, right? I mean, unless you've, like, really got the machinery in place and the funding done, like, out the gate. Like, that's pretty something that only pretty far along veteran documentarians can maybe do. I mean, what was it? Um, Act of Killing was five years. I mean, that was also a gigantic project. Yeah. But that was a five-year film. I mean, there's the documentaries, anything less than two years is impressive. I mean, that's like really you got to have big budgets. But even yeah, like a you, lot of these big budget films. Yeah, <laughs> but even after the spill, and there's been no. other um, docs about the BP oil spill. Sometimes and the subject just can't unfold that. No. Fast. Sometimes it takes time for the events to happen. Right. Right. And even with the sinkhole, I elected I was going to finish in 2014. And then the class action suit in uh, April or May of 2014, they settled. So that was uh, probably eight months before they would get their monies, before they would move on with their lives. Like, I'm staying. you got to wait eight months to see what the results are. Right. Even that's not going to be day one. That's that's going to take a while to unfold. And now I think... It's a good time to be telling the story because all the people that are staying, they're staying. None of the properties are going to be selling or sold. They're going to be bulldozed. So most of the decisions have been made. Most of the people have right. committed to what they're going to do. Correct. Most of the money's paid out, aside from the larger suit with um, Correct. Brian. But as far right. as the community is concerned. Yes. So it's really been um, a learning experience. The, the other thing that I want to, um, any filmmaker out there, do what you say you're going to do. It's all about relationships. Don't ambush your subjects. Be straight. Be transparent. Because in the end, if you're doing a doc, even if you're doing a narrative, but especially if you're doing a doc, and it's going to be more than one year, more than two years, maybe five years, you want to maintain those relationships. And I've seen people that have been burned. And what happens, you'll never... What if the story changes like this one has? And you have to go back to the company. And I've met with Texas Brine several times, and I've been to the sinkhole six times. And when I worked with Discovery International uh, as a fixer or a local producer, I was able to speak to the same people, not on camera... But we went to the sinkhole. If I had screwed them over or hadn't been forthright right. in what my intentions were, 
they would have said, no way, Jose. Or if so. they just see that you keep doing these interviews and there's nothing coming out, like they see no yeah. updates, like they're like, is this thing ever going to actually happen? Exactly. And that's that's always, you know, the the trust in your project and the trust in your narrative. I mean, there's a lot yeah. to it. And, and surround yourself with experienced people. Do not be the smartest if you're a director or producer. If you are the smartest mm-hmm. in the room, you're going to fail. That, <laughs> I like that. that that's exa- I think it's exactly true. And that's why I am use my retirement because I wanted it to be done right. I don't know how to do things half-assed. And I could hire people that knew a whole lot less than I did, but I didn't. And my editor would tell me, Paul, it's my job to teach you. And that's what he's done. He's taught me about a lot of things that I had no clue about. And now I can go to a UNO class and chat with the kids in the documentary film classes and know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You've clearly, I mean sacrificed a lot not just financially but I mean you've sacrificed just a lot of your time a lot three and a half energy. years I mean you've clearly put your heart and soul into this and I think it's just it's a uh, it's very laudable it's something that a lot of documentarians it's easy to get high and mighty and ideological and be like oh yeah we do it for the art but when rubber meets the road do we actually do it and um I know that you know seeing a project like yours is very it's very inspiring it's uh it, you should be very proud of what you've done for that's worth coming from me well, <laughs> well thank you greg i didn't i mean my background was public t- marketing sales mm-hmm. at the same time for 20 some odd years i was involved with public television by interviewing these these individuals of course but my background was was not um film but t- and i'm a little older than a lot of the people that are just starting out with their first doc or their first feature. But don't put any limitations on yourself, but it only goes to show you it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you can do it. Well, you've clearly done good work. I'm excited to see the film. Thank you. I'm hopefully, hopefully it's going to um, be playing later on this year. We are in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign, and we were given preferred status by Kickstarter after four days, which was very exciting. Um, and, and, you know, I'm going to bring it up because I did have another Kickstarter campaign, and it wasn't as successful. But I brought on some young people. Gabrielle Gatto is uh, our associate producer, and she's really been involved with the Kickstarter. She's 22 years old. And you have to bring young people into the equation, older people, young people, because they have a totally different frame of mind. So our video is fun. It's cute. And we're, the page is interesting. So we're bringing people to it. And it's not stiff. It's fun. And the gifts are fun. And they're cool. And we're, our hashtag is become a storyteller instead of, and Gabrielle thought of this, it's not just join us. It's not just please help us. <laughs> Become a storyteller and tell a story like we're doing for the community of Bayou Corn, Louisiana. Beautiful. Well, what can, um, where can people find your project? www.forgottenbayou.com. We keep our website up to date. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just at Forgotten Bayou and everything, correct? Mm-hmm, correct. And become a follower. Become a friend. Become a storyteller. Donate if you're able to. Um, but ultimately it's all about appreciating what a community in Louisiana or any place else in the country would experience and learning from that and identifying with it. And that's what it's all about. But yeah, you can get in touch with me. My phone number's listed online, my email addresses, my cell, my home. It's pretty easy to get in touch with me. Awesome. Well, congrats on making it. You're just, you're almost there. You're almost on the release date. Is that, how's it feel? 
Well, um, probably terrifying. It's well, I, I submitted to the New Orleans Film Festival, and we'll go through sound and final sound edit and final color. So we'll be finished in a couple of months. But now we're tweaking it. We're realizing that um, after we submit it to, the, to that particular film festival, we have to tweak it. It's it's pretty stressful right now. Yeah. I'm trying to enjoy it, trying to get our score written, trying to get the narration written. I brought a couple people on uh, since just the edit. Um, people that were consulting with me uh, actually came on. Diane Zalikoff, Diana Zalikoffer, she's out of California. I met her in New Orleans at a Novak function, actually. <laughs> and she came on as a consulting producer working on the narration and marketing. So it's um, it's stressful right now, but it's exciting, and I'm over budget, and I'm kind of freaked out a little bit, but I'm just surging forward. I'm not letting it bother me because it's all about results. And when I see that on the big screen at the film festivals, I think it's going to be a very exciting, very proud moment for myself and for my team because we've been through it for a long time. So it's very exciting, and... Um, Greg, thank you so much for having me uh, on, no having problem. me here. Thanks for uh, giving me something awesome to talk about. Yay! <laughs> so, um, thanks, uh, thanks a ton for your time, and um, I, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Victoria, and uh, cheers.